Well, hi everyone, this is Carly Vina here for episode 274 of At Percussion. Today with me as usual, our co-host Casey Candelosi. How's it going, Casey? Hey, how's it going, Carly? It's going yeah, good. Pretty good, thanks. Um, ben Charles is here. How's it going in Texas, Ben? Hey, Carly, I'm a, I've been doing very well here. I've been fortunate I never lost power or water or anything like that, but I know our, our library had some pretty extensive damage to it. So uh, yeah, thinking about everyone in Texas right now. Aren't you not? Aren't you not that far from Dallas, Fort Worth? Isn't it like terrible right there? Uh, about an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's just it varies depending on where you are in the you know, the energy grid or whatever. I know some people in Dallas haven't had any problems, and some that have had uh, severe problems. So yeah, gotcha. Well, we're glad you're doing okay, Ben, and um, through the storm, and thinking about any of our listeners that might have had more struggles and challenges in the storm. Um, hopefully, things are cleared up soon by the time this episode airs. Um, Ksenia is out today because she has her premiere of the piano and percussion version of Rite of Spring, which is very exciting. So I'm sure we'll hear about that next week from her. Um, but Casey, what happened on our release date in history? It's March 4th. Yeah, sure. I've got some audio and video hints for you. So here's the first. That is guitarist Mary Osborne, who maybe you've never heard of, but she died at age 70 today in 1992. She came to prominence in New York City in the 1940s and played with other jazz musicians such as Dizzy Gillespie, Art Tatum, Coleman Hawkins, and Thelonious Monk. After moving to California in 1968, her and her husband founded the Osborne Guitar Company, which I had never heard of, and I didn't think Osborne guitars were... Uh, something that uh, any of my friends played or talked about or anything, but apparently, yeah, they're these vintage guitars, and I guess they were they were very popular at one point, and the company does still exist. But I think, yeah, you don't you don't find them anywhere. But yeah, uh, Mary Osborne, really really prominent guitar player in jazz. Uh, let's see. Also in 1965, I've talked about this piece before. And I basically try to share this recording every chance I get on this show. I've definitely shared it before, but this will probably sound and look familiar to you all. This is Ligeti's, well, my version of Ligeti's Poem Symphonique for 100 metronomes. Get some sound here in a second. So we have talked about this on the show before more than once, I believe. Oh, play the whole but... thing. Play the whole thing, man. What are you doing? Cut it short. The whole thing is part of why this piece is interesting, and I'm I'm not going to rehash all what this piece is about again. But uh, let's see. What do I want to say? So this was the first U.S. performance happened on release date March fourth, and it was in like I said, 1965. Ligeti's symphonic poem for 100 metronomes. Uh, U.S. premiere was in Buffalo, New York. There's a lot of news today. Janis Joplin in 1970 was fined $200 for using obscene language on stage in Tampa, Florida. So that makes her extra cool. Antonio Vivaldi was born in 1678. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, the ballet, the very famous ballet, premiered in 1877. 
also Romeo and Juliet, the famous symbol excerpt that we have. If you can't play that, then you can't play symbols. That's the law. 1870 was that first performance. And one of my favorite bands had their one and only gold record certified. The record is called Stranger Than Fiction. It's definitely not their best album, but uh, Bad Religion is a my favorite punk rock band from my childhood for sure and i don't think gold records are rare in punk rock but they're probably rare in this kind of punk rock because like the real popular punk rock is that blink 182 uh melancholin who else is in that group i don't know but like that whiny high school sucks and breakups are hard kind of punk rock and yeah i'm sure those have all sorts of gold and platinum records but good punk rock yeah it's, it's uh, not so popular so that was march 4th for you I feel a little triggered by that last comment. I was a pretty big Blink-182 fan back in the day. Yeah. No, it's good. Yeah, I, I, I liked Blink-182 too, for sure. But you think about like, what you know, it's what, what that is about. It's like, oh yeah, high school sucks. Growing up sucks. Yeah, okay. It's, yeah. Kind, of, it's kind of weird hearing a bunch of... Like it's kind of weird hearing a bunch of men in their mid forties talking about how like their high school breakup was hard and how getting their driver's license is a drag or whatever. So anyway, bad, drag, bad, religion, bad religion doesn't sing about that kind I'm of thing. Not joke. over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Well, thanks. That was a that was a real mashup of a lot of different kinds of history. I had to really pick and choose. It's like, oh, okay, dig into. I didn't know who Mary Osborne was, so I thought that was that was worth highlighting. And she has all this video out there on YouTube. That video I showed you, uh, she's um, playing right next to Billie Holiday in it. So yeah, like I said, I mean Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie. I mean she was really, really prominent jazz guitarist. That's super cool. I had never heard of her either. We're drummers, so well, yeah, we're excused. <laughs> Don't expect too much from us, I suppose. Well, with, without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Jillian Baxter is with us. Jillian serves as the Assistant Professor of Music at Albany State University in Albany, Georgia, where she teaches applied percussion, percussion methods, music theory, and music appreciation. She was recently elected to serve on the PAS Board of Advisors. She is very active in the PAS Diversity Alliance and in the University Pedagogy Committee. She's been involved in several panel and roundtable discussions recently, including one as part of PASIC 2020 with the Diversity Alliance. Um, she holds degrees in percussion performance from the University of Georgia, uh, from Belmont University and Middle Tennessee State University. Welcome to the show, Jillian. It's so great to see you. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here with all of you. Hey, thanks. Well, I'd love to hear um, a little about what has teaching looked like at Albany State for you this year? Have you faced any kind of specific challenges or found any um, any unexpected benefits, things that work really well teaching during the pandemic? Well, I know when everything hit, you know, early last year, I think for everybody, it was just kind of very tough. It was just a, hey, we got to shut down, go home. Um, and we, everybody just had to go to virtual teaching, you know, so that spring semester, you know, 2020 um, was a challenge for pretty much everybody, you know, I think um, for a lot of people teaching virtually was not something they were accustomed to doing, you know, so used to face to face. Um, I know for me, transitioning to, you know, I'm used to teaching applied lessons face to face and now, oh, we've got to do this virtually, how are we going to do this, you know, when students don't have marimbas and timpani at home, you know, and it really challenged me to be a little bit more creative, 
know, about um, techniques and what can we really do to, to keep them going. You know, in this uh, fall, you know, I'm, I've been very, actually very lucky, I would say, that, you know, I thought that we were going to come back and still have this whole virtual thing going on, which is what a lot of universities are. But we actually um, came back with kind of options for everybody, you know, as far as you could come back hybrid if you wanted, you could come back face to face, you could do virtual, you know, we had a lot of student options. And luckily for a lot of our music classes, um, we were able to put them in, you know, larger spaces to where we could meet face to face. And so we still had students that were, you know, maybe not as excited to come back or just still scared, you know, with everything going on that, that stayed home and, and went virtually. But all of, pretty much all of my percussion students came back face to face. So it was really neat. And, you know, I had, I got to do percussion ensemble. I actually did percussion ensemble pieces, you know, while other people didn't, you know, I was thinking that I was going to have to learn how to do, you know, recordings and have them all over the screen, all the cool things, everything everybody does now. Um, but I was able to do everything face to face. Uh, and this semester spring has been about the same. We, we are trucking along. Um, I get to see everybody every day. And that's been really neat. But even with that, I think it, it totally changed my mindset on how to teach, you know, um, because you can't rest on all the things that you were used to having before. So um, whereas I was always really into technique, I think I was, I think I went even farther in depth into technique and this is what the hands look like and this is this and this is how you do these strokes. And this is how it feels on, you know, it just, it just opened up my mind. Um, and I think I began, um, just got better at explaining things if nothing else. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think we're all better at talking about technique because there's only so much you can see on the camera on either end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and absolutely. Can just, can, and can we all just agree we're tired of those Zoom like videos, <laughs> click track videos? Can we all just, can we all just now universally agree that that's, that's not cool anymore? It was very cool about Ago. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool for like a week. It's like, how do you do that? Oh, everyone yeah. a click, and then like everyone does it once, and then you're like, okay, we don't need to do that ever again. One thing with those that I've I've wondered about is like, I, I think it, it's like not so musical when everyone just records with the click track in their ear, then like you know the professor puts it all together. But I'm like, what if like one person recorded with the click track? And then the second person like recorded to them with only the click and like the places where they weren't playing and you like kind of cycled through it and then you went back to the first person and they re-recorded and you did that a couple of times. I mean, it would be a huge pain because you'd be constantly re-editing, but like would you be able to take out some of the clickness of it? Uh -huh. Hey, remember how we played Wilcoxon just live on Zoom? <laughs> the Zoom? We, just said, we just said one, two, ready, go. And it was just, it was sort of like the Liggety poem you just heard. That's better. Yeah. Pretty much. I can yeah. do that. <laughs> well, Ben, I think you have something. Well, oh God, I have quite quite a doozy of a question, Jillian. And if you'll allow me to ramble for a second as part of my question. Um, so one thing that, that's come to light a lot recently that I've realized is I always felt like civil rights were something we studied in school. That was a thing of the past. It happened in like the 60s and 70s. We solved all the problems and then, you know, we're living in, uh, you know, modern society now where we fix all those issues. 
Obviously, that's not the case. Obviously, that's recently come very much to light. And one thing that's been uh, enlightening to me is uh, systemic issues in both music and education. And we'll talk about, I have a little topic on the musical side later, um, but on, on the terms of education, uh, I know that you teach at an HBCU and I've been actually reading about them recently because Apple just had a big uh, diversity initiative where they've pledged $100 million uh, toward HBCUs um, and, and education for minorities. Um, and so could you tell us about what do you feel like is the role of the HBCU in a modern educational landscape? Yeah, that was a real doozy of a question. You were right. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, if I could give you a, a second to, to think, I, I did see someone online posted uh, something about, you know, I, I graduated high school with like a 1.2 GPA. The only school I was accepted to was an HBCU. I went there, I learned how to be a student, graduated, you know, with honors and went on to graduate school. So I think that could maybe be a starting place for it. Yeah. You know, the HBCUs have a, a great place, you know, foundationally, you know, across the board, no matter what type of student wants to go there. Um, what kind of happens in our environment is we are probably a lot more family oriented, you know, meaning that um, people just feel better um, by coming on campus. You know, um, I find for me as a teacher, you know, I, I feel like I have like 100 students or but they're also like my children, you know, and they probably see me as such as like a mother. Whereas, you know, if I were going to a non-HBCU, it, it has a little bit more of a feel, more standoffish, especially to someone who looks like me, okay? Um, so a lot, of, a lot of people will choose to come to HBCU simply because of the environment, um, that feeling of belonging, feeling that it doesn't matter what I look like, where I came from, I have a place here and I can kind of make my way. So you know, that, that's a lot of what people will find at HBCU. Now, um, even though it's a historically black college, that doesn't mean that there are only black students that go there. You know, there are all kinds of students um, that go there. And even if I were not black, you know, students will still find a place to feel, you know, involved, to feel a part of. Yeah. And you mentioned that part, I think you're talking about kind of like that access, okay, starting off, you know, for some of the larger state schools, for instance, because there's so many people that are trying to get into those schools, you know, the criteria to getting gets higher and higher and higher. You know, if you're going to have, you know, 50,000 students that come in, you know, I can have, um, the qualifications of 3.9 GPA, you have to be, you know, because there's so many people who want to go there, um, which our HBCUs traditionally have a little bit smaller campus. Our, you know, classroom sizes can be a little bit smaller, doesn't have to be, we still have huge classes, um, but it's just a friendlier environment. We, you know, you could come in with a slightly lower GPA. You still have to work just as hard, but there probably are some people who are going to pull up their sleeves, work a little bit harder to get you where you need to be versus you're here, get it, good luck. And so that's, you know, that that difference in being at an HBCU versus a non-HBCU. It's, it's kind of that environment, that feeling of belonging, so to speak. And the drum lines are like way funner. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 
get to do a whole lot of cool dancing and groovy music. I mean, who doesn't love that? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm glad you said that because I, I came across this quote today, and I've kind of I was probably looking for an excuse to use this, but <laughs> I already sent it to our little group chat in prep for this. I was watching this documentary called Abstracts today. Uh, and there was a quote from it that says, this is by Ilsa Crawford. She says, an art school has to be a mixture of a monastery, a pub, and a sweatshop. Uh, and I think we can all kind of think about those three things and like, okay, there's the monastery part, there's the, yeah. And like, I think the uh, the pub part is kind of what you're talking about. Like it, it has to feel like a family. You have to feel welcome there. You have to feel like you're comfortable around the people you're around. That's why it's mandatory to have a beer on the podcast. <laughs> Nobody told me this. Told well, I'm also the only one. So they're all in violation, actually, of, of standard protocol. Yeah, you just can't get us to follow all the rules, Casey. Yes, please follow protocol. I'm sorry. I think, Carly, I think you were next, actually. Well, yeah, I, I, thinking about um, a lot of the issues that we're having during the pandemic, the, the pandemic for me, I think, has highlighted so many issues with access in education and especially with percussion. And Jillian, I wanted to ask you about your, your GMEA presentation that you did recently, um, which I think was about uh, well, the, the title I'll share and then I'll let you tell us what it was about. Um, Level up a game plan for improving skills of percussionists with limited time and resources. So kind of dealing with some of the challenges people are having with access right now. Would you tell us about your presentation? Yes, um, really fun presentation. Um, Joe Moore and Teddy Hall and I all joined in to kind of split off. We actually took an instrument category piece. It kind of broke down, um, you know, if in a perfect world, everybody would walk in as a freshman and know everything on every instrument and have every grip down and, and you could just teach them everything, you know, just take off and running, but we all know in the real world that's not how it works. Some students come in with deficiencies. You know, I may read really well on snare drum, but I don't read on keyboards. I have, I've never tuned a timpani, you know, and these students come and you teach them. You know, I think there are probably some places where they would be turned away and they just know, but in the real world, there are more universities in the you know, United States that you can walk on campus I can be great at this one area, but I'm not so great over here. So our clinic kind of went through, you know, we realistically have four years to get these students to a, a certain point. So when they walk in the door and they can't read pitch percussion very well, you know, they don't have that great match grip and their hands look wonky. You know, what do you do to get them there and what's the efficient way to do it? So we kind of broke down in a snare drum category, I did um, keyboards, two mallet keyboards, um, and we did timpani as those big three. Um, here are some of the, the basic techniques from grip. You know, any student that walks in, whether they already play really great or not, these are the things you really need to look at and that might help them, you know, move any fat, you know, faster, you know, grip, um, um, helping them to read. I think for, you know, keyboards, I talked about um, if they're not feeling great at reading, start with, you know, a small category of notes. Um, actually speaking notes out loud, making sure you're sight reading every time you see them, encouraging them and teaching them how to sight read, you know, that's really what the, the whole clinic was, was about. And we kind of broke it down really to the bottom floor. This is what they need to know. And if they know this, then you can build upon that. Because if they, they don't have really great technique, um, 
everything else is just going to be difficult and horrible anyway. Well, that's so important because so at, at many schools, I think it's common state universities and just a lot of schools, there are students that can do amazing things that just haven't had access to instruction and access to, you know, just the, the information. Um, so that's so important that we're, we're willing to work and say, here's what you need to, here's what you need to know to get from point A to point B. And then as long as they do the work, they'll be, they'll be in good shape. Yeah, I think it has, um, just kind of adding to what you said, I think it has kind of has to do with that idea of what success is. I think everybody kind of has a different definition of what success may be. And depending on where you are, where you started from, that looks different. I guess for me, you know, success pretty much is pretty simple. It's when you walk in the door, where you are now is, is this pinpoint. And over time, have you progressed from that point? And that's that's a success. If I've changed, if I've learned something, if I've grown, even if it was only an inch, that still should be a success. And some people have a totally different idea. It has to be way up here, you know, to be successful. But, you know, success is just, I start somewhere and I increase to another point. So I think it's just changing that whole mindset across the board. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that trajectory. Sorry, I was gonna say it's so great what you're saying. Like it, it's like I think all music educators have this like this like fantasy that they're teaching at Juilliard, and it's like you know like if you're teaching at like a you know small, I am, I am. Like, <laughs> it's it's okay. Like we're just trying to make music. It's you're not trying to win the New York Phil audition. You know, like just improve where you are. It's fine. It's a little tricky, isn't it? Because like like you know we're talking about you know when are you finished or, or, or where, where the benchmarks are. And I know, I know a lot of like a lot of the discussion and especially like the idea of access to universities, like sometimes it's suggested we should change standards or we should, we should alter where those benchmarks are in order to let more people in. And it's hard because the benchmarks aren't determined by us. They're determined by the world. It's like, well, until that New York Phil audition includes other music, you know, so people, for instance, you know, I mentioned, gosh, in the news here just now, I mentioned, you know, three dead white guys, uh, Ligeti, Vivaldi, and um, uh, help me out, who else did I mention? Uh, Ligeti, Vivaldi, and um, Tchaikovsky, and the Tchaikovsky, you know, crash symbol excerpt. It's like, people promote like, oh, well, well, don't keep teaching the the Tchaikovsky Romeo and Juliet symbol excerpt. Let's substitute that with something else like, man, I'd love to, but like, it's really hard to move that benchmark because until the world asks for something else, like we kind of have a responsibility to keep doing that. So it's, it's um, I don't know, that's, I don't know where that fits into this exactly, but it's somewhere in that access and that like benchmark conversation, if that makes sense. It's kind of a drag. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy about that. I'm just saying that's that's the thing. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it it kind of limits you to what you really can do, or puts people in a place where they feel like I have to do this because if I don't, then I don't look this way, or I'm not being successful in the world, or you know, if you want to talk about social media, I have to have these pieces, and my students are performing this, 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 and you know. And therefore, I don't have a successful program because I'm not doing what the world says I should do. So mm -hmm. it's just kind of an ugly circle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's somewhat of a counterpoint to what you're saying, Casey. I think you can also like look at where the ball is going. 
and mm -hmm. realize like, okay, well, like maybe we do need to have a, you know, William Grant stills extra out there because that's probably going to come up one day. And also, I mean, there are, yeah, outside of the talk of diversity, it's like crash symbols are crash symbols. Like we generally play them the same way and you can apply your Tchaikovsky technique to any other composer's crash symbol excerpt. You know, it's like, it's listening skills. It's, you know, technique, things like that. It's not, it's not reinventing the wheel every time you pick up a pair of crash symbols. Yeah. But until they're asking for it, it's like if you have a student saying, I want to, I want to win an orchestra yeah, job. I don't think it also, like, it doesn't necessarily need to be an either or thing. Also, like, you can do both Tchaikovsky and something else. Yeah. Sorry, Carly, I think you have. Well, and you can substitute in another place, like do it in percussion ensemble, you know, so don't do Verez. Nobody's asking for Verez, you know, yeah, yeah, you can, you can fill that, that role somewhere else. Certainly. That's what I think in general, a lot of, a lot of people are doing more and more all the time. Right. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking about, um, Julian mentioned a couple of times, the definition of success, and it reminded me of this Maya Angelou quote, you guys might be familiar with it. It's success is liking yourself, liking what you do and liking how you do it. And I've always thought like, that's very nice. It's different than what we're talking about with this success is, is growth, no matter what the actual specific benchmark is, but growth in any amount um, towards improving and towards learning and, and all of that. But um, I've always, I've always liked that quote. Ben, do you think it's a good time to, to shift right into your topic? Speaking of presentation. Sure. Well, since, since Jillian mentioned GMEA, uh, there was some news a couple weeks ago from TMEA, Texas Music Educators Association, I wanted to talk about today. Um, and uh, to make a, a long story short, there was a clinic uh, by a uh, bassoon uh, teacher and he had this, uh, slide and it was how to choose the right students. I'm assuming he means beginning band students for bassoon. And he says, uh, intangible characteristics, including self-motivation, intelligence, socioeconomic status, prepackaged musical knowledge and stable home. And he goes on to talk about uh, socioeconomic status, never prohibitive, but should be taken into account when regarding the expense of reads and lessons and also the stable home thing, like do they live in an apartment or a house? Um, and obviously these are things that will be barriers to learning bassoon, but they will also be barriers to learning any instrument. Um, so I think the question comes, why would you use these things as qualifiers for any instrument when they are, you know, just intrinsically related to learning of an instrument? And so I did some, some digging on uh, systemic issues with uh, classical music, and there were many articles on the topic, uh, some of which I thought were very well thought out, some of which seemed sort of a little heavy handed and let's just throw Beethoven under the bus for the sake of throwing Beethoven under the bus. Um, but I found one that I really liked uh, from the New York Times called Black Artists on How to Change Classical Music. And for context, uh, black players make up less than 2% of the nation's orchestras and the Metropolitan Opera has still in 2021 yet to put on a single work by a black composer. So this article asked nine different black musicians uh, about their thoughts on the topic of how to change classical music. Um, and I picked out four quotes in particular that I liked. Um, you can find the full article to, to see who all the people are. A couple notable names on the list that I'm not going to talk about right now are clarinetist Anthony McGill and composer Terrence Blanchard, both of whom I was familiar with. But um, the, the four quotes I wanted to bring up, one was from bassoonist Monica Ellis, who plays in the Imani Winds Quintet. 
Uh, she says, the first step is admitting that these organizations are built on a white framework built to benefit white people. Have you done the work to create a structure that is actually benefiting black and brown communities? When that occurs, diversity is a natural byproduct. By, by uh, com conductor Thomas Wilkins says, in Philadelphia for a community concert, they once found a high school that was acoustically inferior, aesthetically no comparison, the chorus and the audience behind me. It made no sense except for the joy that it brought to the community to have the Philadelphia Orchestra in their backyard. They want to have some sense that they count and they matter. And by going there, it's us saying, yes, you do. Conductor Roderick Cox says, I would like to, excuse me, I would like changes to be made in how we train musicians and conservatories and universities. A lot of our thinking and our perception of what's good music becomes indoctrinated at that stage. If students learn about composers like William Grant Still or Florence Price and their approaches to making music, then they will want then they will become more versatile. Schools won't just be producing conductors who want to do Wagner, Strauss, and Mahler. And then lastly, composer Tanya Leon says, certain groups of people have felt that they did not belong because most of the time they didn't see people who resembled them on stage. But even if things look good on stage internally, is that what is happening at the institution? It's a family type thing. That person working in the office goes home and tells the people at home that they, and they usually have their other friends. That is how audiences change. It has to be from inside out. So I thought that was some great insight from uh, musicians on how to change the classical music world. And yeah. also, sorry, if I, could, if I could add one thing to that uh, about going back to the TMEA thing for a second, TMEA actually uh, removed that content uh, and tweeted out, they said content was presented during a 2021 clinic that was inconsistent with TMEA's vision, purpose and support of high quality music education for all students. We therefore remove the clinic. TMEA's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is rooted in continuing conversations among educators to better serve our students and members. So, yeah. I think I would also add that that guy missed the second slide, and that is that even if you wanted to look for those things, you're not allowed to. So, That's, yeah. so what a dipshit for a lot of reasons. But like, um, first of all, you're—I mean, aside from being a you know a horrible person it would seem but also like you're just not allowed to do that you know like you're the certain uh you're certainly not uh um, given the given the allowance to like probe for that kind of information from people so i thought it was just kind of a joke you know that's all well, thanks, Ben. That was a lot and a lot covering a, a whole lot of topics. And I think we could delve so deep. But I wonder, Jillian, what you have, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share on TMEA or on any of those quotes Ben shared from the article. Well, you know, as far as the TMEA, you know, one of my friends had, you know, mentioned it to me a while back when it came out. And I think it even sent me pictures of the slides. And I think I looked at them for a moment and I thought it, I really thought it was a joke. I thought, oh, somebody just made a meme and I had no idea until later that somebody really had done this at a presentation. I thought it, I really didn't think it was real. Um, and, you know, looking at that, just like Casey said, you know, those are things that you shouldn't, you're not allowed to look for, but, you know, if you were using that as a criteria, wouldn't we just be knocking out so many people everywhere? You know, you can't, um, I mean, the whole purpose of music, we think of it as a universal language. Isn't that what we say it is? So should it not universally be allowed for everyone? 
that's the whole thing. We can speak and reach so many people through music, you know. Um, they are, you know, places that they don't have the capacity to buy instruments, so they make them out of whatever they can find, you know. So I, I you know, it kind of blows my mind that somebody, you know, would even have that in their mindset. It, it defeats the whole purpose for anybody who truly loves music, the way I, you know, I think that people are passionate about it. I mean, you would want everybody to be able to be a part. So if I were to meet somebody who didn't have the, the financial means or whatever means, I would be looking to try to see what I could do to help them versus just shutting them out. So that's globally what I you know kind of felt about that. I, I really couldn't believe that that was real and that's just not gonna work, you know, in the real world. You know, um, as far as the rest of your article talking about all those quotes, you know, um, I had read that article um, originally and it was a it was a really beautiful article and there's so many great things in there and I think there is a divide you know between you know, why do we not have um, so many black you know artists in classical music and some of that is you know is a stigma of how was that presented you know if I went to the everyday you know black household they're not going to be playing Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Schumann and things like that. And that's not that that's not good music, but that's just not, you know, the thing. But if I flip it the other way, you know, if I went to a white household, they're not going to be playing, you know, Whitney Houston and Beyonce, you know, you know, so, you know, it's why are we discrediting one for the other? I mean, isn't good music just great music? Um, so we, you know, I guess all to say, you know, until we, one, stop putting certain music on a pedestal and we just acknowledge that if music is good, it's just good. It doesn't matter what genre it is, who wrote it, you know, when, you know, period. Music is it's just good. Um, and stop that. You know, I, I think if I teach a music appreciation class um, and I was teaching students and you know it's a historically black college so you know most of the students are there are black and I'm trying to talk about Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and, and it's just going whew. but then you know I, I'm like hey check out this symphony the afro you know symphony by William Grant Steele and they're like oh my god that's the most incredible thing and that was awesome and then I'm like talking to them about you know the woodwinds and the strings and this is what a symphony is and they are totally locked in and then they're like man classical music is awesome because they, you know, they have that link of, oh, wow, this is somebody who looks like me. They are doing this genre that you keep talking about. I think I might actually lock into this. So, I mean, making it, you know, tangible, um, seeing people actually having somebody that looks like them actually doing that. There's just so many spot, you know, spots to that. I just kind of get overwhelmed just thinking about, you know, how, how this can be so different, you know, and this is once again a mindset. How do we present the music? We've just got to stop that big divide. It's, it's so, so important. I feel like I've been hit over the head with this so many times in the last couple of years, really, how important representation is because I didn't, I, I wasn't as aware of it when I was a kid, um, you know, thinking about the musicians that I saw or the teachers that I studied with, but it is so, so like what a difference it can make knowing it's not just 
old dead white guys were talking about, but there are black people involved in this too. And, you know, and, and what, like, what a, what a difference that can make. Ben, did, did you have something? Oh yeah. I was going to add Jillian. I actually, I had the exact same reaction when I saw that slide. I was like, Oh, this is a joke. Like, this is like a little, like a little, <laughs> made to end. like wait, this was actually presented like Jesus. <laughs> uh, so, so you're not alone in that. Um, but yeah, then also uh, I, I had so many things I thought of while you were talking about um, one of the things, I think I've said it on the podcast before, there's this uh, series uh, called The 70s, um, and it was like produced by CNN, I think it's on Netflix, um, but they do an episode on music, and they talk about the Jackson 5, and uh, they had a like a black commentator that said, when we saw the Jackson 5 on TV, we couldn't believe it. We said, it, it, it looks like us on TV, like we've, we've never seen that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like, it's so like, again, refreshing to hear about like, yeah, like just because this composer, like you identify with this composer, it, it makes it that much more relevant and important to you. And I know when um, the conductor, uh, Ricardo Muti of the Chicago Symphony took the reins in, 2011-ish, uh, somewhere around there. Um, it was his mission to bring the the symphony out to the community, and actually they played at a prison, uh, or maybe I think it was actually like a juvenile detention center. And he brought a, a very prominent black tenor to the prison to sing, and the students were, you know, at the prison were saying, you know, we we felt something. He, he was talking to us with this old music. So yeah, it's it's interesting to see that idea of representation. Well, you know, bringing it back to the TMEA um, fiasco for for just a minute, I want, I had a couple of thoughts reading about all of this. I actually didn't think it was a joke. I thought, wow, how could somebody get away with saying this in a in a national and potentially international um, with with online attendance kind of kind of conference? But I thought, wow. Um, you know, did they not ask to see the materials? Did they not talk about it? And then I thought, well, I presented at FMEA uh, two years ago and, or a year ago and submitted like three or four sentences. Here's my topic. And then it was, okay, see you in Tampa. Um, so I don't know if, if I imagine things are probably going to be a little tighter, at least in Texas with that sort of thing. Um, and one other thought that I had was he might be this, this person, I don't even remember his name might be the only person saying this out loud to other people that I screen students for this, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who teach all different instruments that are looking for students that are wealthy and can pay for lessons and looking for students that can afford a really nice instrument because it, you know, in, in programs where achievement is pushed, that makes your job easier if you're a band director, for example, I, I imagine. Um, and then the, the third thing that I thought of with all of this is really, it's not even so much to me, this, this person has, you know, ideas that clearly don't reflect the value of most educators. Like this is, so wrong in so many ways but in the in the end it's really like the system that is failing the students that why do we have i mean i think it it brings back a point jillian when you were talking about how do we define success um in a lot of band programs the awards and the you know the prizes that the, the students take and the band takes that's success and i think there's so much pressure to get there um but how do we change the system so that it serves the students and ultimately what we want is students to be growing and learning artistically. I think we all need to go to our respective bassoon colleagues and just toilet paper. Carly, you're married to a bassoonist. <laughs> that's, is... 
Who I probably knew get... about this before any of you because it was like last weekend. He answers for this on air right now. He was also disgusted by it, just for, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> Take care of your people over there, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> and my buddy Sue Barber, I'm coming for you. You're going to answer answer for this. I was going to say that. Um, I don't know, you know, Carly and I went at, at different times to the Boston Conservatory. That's a place we attended a degree. And um, I don't know about you, Carly, but a lot of the fellow students around me, they were very taken care of in their youth. They went to New England Preparatory Academy. They went to Juilliard Pre-College. They went to Aspen, Tanglewood. They, they like did everything. They came from uh, the camp you teach at, and I've taught it, uh, but you teach it a lot more than I do. Um, what, interlocking? Yeah, interlocking. Like they're inter interlocking kids and they're, and I mean, my class of kids, a lot of those students didn't really go anywhere. Um, and that's not to say it's a really super good unilateral comparison to other colleges, because I think I was very lucky. I wasn't as lucky as them. My parents were not Hollywood musician helicopter parents the way a lot of those parents are of like, oh, yeah, you're going to know these conductors and you're going to you're going to know everything that the conductors and your teachers have done at those schools and you're going to go to New England Conservatory Preparatory Academy and you're going to do all that. Stuff. So a lot of those kids didn't do that great. You know, in fact, every one of them I can think of that did that isn't still doing music. So I don't know, like they do the bassoonist idea that this is what you need to look for. I, I, I bet there's a lot more science than feeling that it's maybe not entirely true, you know? And maybe the contrary is true. Well, I think it's certainly not, it's not the strongest indicator of a student's success, even, you know, their home life, their finances, anything like that. Like I, I see this in, in South Florida, especially in Miami, there's a huge gap. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of disadvantaged people. And then there's a lot of wealth. Um, and there's not a whole lot in the in the middle is what I find compared to other places that I've taught and, and lived. Um, and it's it's not the biggest indicator in my experience. You know what what students need is we all know this consistent practice, um, consistent, you know, in, in a certain sense, like they do need to have a supportive environment that is conducive to them doing the work they need to do. Like there are circumstances that need to be there, but, um, you know, struggles are not prohibitive. Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, gosh, I, I feel like I grew up in a super lucky environment, like super, super duper lucky. But I didn't go to New England Preparatory Academy. I didn't go to blah, 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 pre-college. I didn't go to Aspen. I didn't go to ZMF. I went to ZMF once. You know, I didn't go to a thing every summer and, 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 and all that. So I don't know. I mean, of course, it's a, it's a balance we're talking about. Well, I do want to ask you, Jillian, um, in the fall, I saw you were elected to serve on the PAS Board of Advisors. So congratulations for that. That's wonderful. Um, would you tell us a little bit about your work with the Board of Advisors? I actually realized as I'm thinking about you and what you're doing, I thought, I don't know exactly what the Board of Advisors for PAS does. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just getting on there. So I'm just, you know, learning all, you know, what my responsibilities are. But, you know, essentially you have you know, like a board of directors and you have um, a board of advisors, but as a member of the board of advisors, I'm kind of like that voice, um, one of those voices for the masses. So, you know, there's 
thousands of people who may be, you know, in the percussion community or members of PAS, you know, and when it comes down to making a decision that's good for the community at large, you know, you have to have people who you can talk to about that or bring forward perspectives of the whole, you know, what, you know, because you can't always go and ask all 5,000 people, what do you think, or do a survey. So as um, one of those advisor members, I, you know, I'm seriously kind of the voice for you, you know, for, you know, here's this idea, we're thinking about changing this, you know, what do you think about it, you know, if, if there are any concerns that may not have been brought up, I'm, I'm one of those people that would be able to to voice that, have you thought about this? Or, you know, I can at least put my, you know, those views, not just my views, but I can take it to anybody and say, you know, what are your perspectives? How do you view this? And let me take it back and kind of put it on the floor. So that's, that's kind of how that works. Well, I'm so glad you are there on, on the board because I think I'm sure you have so much to offer with your perspective. Speaking of PAS and your in involvement there, I know you've done a lot of work with the Diversity Alliance. You are the gender issues point person. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, do you feel that it's a, a bit of a responsibility to be an advocate in our field for diversity? And if so, does that, does it feel like it weighs on you at times? I think it's definitely something that has to be done. And yeah, it, it is kind of weighty. I think for me, um, being female and African-American, I almost have like a dual kind of role. Like people are looking at me as the female, you know, perspective and then also the African-American perspective. And so um, sometimes it can be a little bit of, uh, emotionally heavy because you want to represent well, you know, I think um, you might think more about what you say or what you do, you know, and, and trying to make sure you feel like you're just that role model or that person that everybody's always looking to. So you want to make sure you do a good job more so than some people can just do whatever, say whatever, do whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, so it can be a little heavy, like it's a, it's a bigger responsibility. I can't just do anything like some other people because, you know, if I do, I will definitely get called on the carpet. You know, I will be all over, the, you know, somebody's going to say something, it's going to be all over social media, somebody's, you know, more so than some other people that I might, you know, know. Um, but I still think it's, it's kind of a responsibility or things that has to be done because um, that's the only way we're going to have change. You know, I, you know, percussion has for a long time been a predominantly male-oriented instrument. You know, and that's been a mindset for a long time. You know, I, I came up, you know, thinking middle school, high school, you know, there weren't many other females in, you know, playing percussion. You know, I remember wanting to play in the drum line and wanting to play, you know, tenor drums and, you know, multi-tenors. And they were like, no, you can't do that. That's not what, that's not what, you know, you're going to have to go play in the front ensemble. You know, you know, that, that stigma, you know, girls have to play mallets and guys, but you know, I've, I've come up through all of that, you know, when I went to um, different, I guess, different things, like I went to interlocking and things like that, you know, I got to see, you know, different people, and it was like really neat, because it wasn't so, you know, male and female, it's got to be this, you know, I, I was there with, you know, a couple other females at the time in percussion, but then, 
they all felt that they had to be really aggressive because, you know, I have to compete with men and, and men have aggressive spirits. So I have to have this persona to compete. You know, we just, we just have a lot going on um, with that male versus female thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's something that has to be done. I, you know, it's been really neat um, coming into, you know, being part of the gender um, concerns, you know, subcommittee and talking to other um, members to see what, you know, they feel or what do they want to work on. And, you know, no matter where they are, you know, I, I have members that are in New York and out West and things like that. And they're all saying kind of the same thing, you know, they're um, tired of being in a male dominated or male mindset, you know, why does it have to be this way? And I, I find more people like that, you know, so that's, that's the gender side of it. And like I said, me being, you know, African-American, I have to also consider the racial aspects of that. And, you know, I've come through a lot of that too. So yeah, that's a lot of responsibility and it can, it can weigh on you because like I said, you want to be that model. I've got to show the way it should be. And sometimes it's not clear cut. You just have to do the right thing and it may not feel good, but you feel like you've got to do it even if nobody else does it, so to speak. Well, and even just, I think the responsibility for you, you speak so eloquently and so well on so many topics related to diversity, but the responsibility to have this conversation and to keep having it um, when there might be other things you'd rather be thinking about or focusing on, um, especially musically and artistically. But, um, you know, I, I guess that that is probably a responsibility that can weigh very heavily, too. But I want you to know that you're doing very, very important work. And I know everybody here on the podcast, we appreciate you, the, the things that you're doing and bringing to light. Um, I did want to ask you, was was any kind of discrimination, um, especially when you were younger, for being female or for being African-American? Were you, How aware were you of that when you were younger? And how do you think it affected you either either way, I suppose? Yeah, you know, I think that from a, an early age, I, you know, I was, I knew that there was discrimination going on around me, but, you know, I was kind of raised up to be able to, to deal with it. If that makes sense. It's kind of like this, this is going to happen to you. And my mother kind of prepared me to go out in the world, um, and, and expect there to be discrimination. You know, not that it should be that way, but, you know, she wanted me to be strong and, you know, to be able to fight or just, you know, not crumble, you know. I think maybe the first time I faced discrimination, you know, had nothing to do with music. It was me being a young child and, you know, having another girl wanting to, you know, come over to my house. It was a nice little white girl, you know. We are best of friends at school. Um, and she would come over to my house and her dad would, you know, let her come over. Um, but one day she, she invited me over and I guess he didn't know I was black because my name is Jillian. It's not, I guess, a name that you can assume is a black name, you know? And so when I came over to their house, you know, it was totally like, oh no, you need to call your mom right now. You need to go home. And I had no idea what was going on. I, I was just kind of floored. You know, my mom came down and got me. And I was like, mom, I don't understand what's going on. She goes, don't worry, baby. It's going to be okay. Your friend can come over to the house anytime she wants to. Don't worry about it. 
and you know and luckily she was able to still come over to my house but you know that was like my first experience I think I was maybe seven or eight you know years old um and that was like first experience of wow this there's people who actually might not want to deal with me just because I look different from them you know and I'm from South Carolina so I am in the south and there's there's a lot of racial divide you know and I think the area that I lived in um, it was pretty evident, you know, the places that you could go or you should go, you could just tell by the flags that are flying or I could go in this store and it's okay, you know, unconsciously, I just learned, you know, people are not going to accept me um, and how to maneuver that. I shouldn't have had to, but I did. Um, as far as going, you know, into the, the music field, um, I don't think that I really pay as much attention um, to any of the racial differences till I was probably going to college because I, I lived in a predominantly white um, city. You know, I went to all the different music camps like USC music camp, I went to governor school, you know, all the big things that, you know, musicians did, I did them. And I didn't pay attention to who was around me. But you know, when I think back on it now, there weren't many people who looked like me at all. And I just became accustomed to being the only you know, African-American you know, in the crowd. Because even as I went up in, in high school, the older I got, the less people I would have in my classroom to the point where I was a senior, it was nothing for me to go to like my accelerated classes and things like that. And I was the only black student in my class. So it just became normal, you know, unfortunately. And so it wasn't really until I guess I got to college and started doing some other competitions and actually was outside of South Carolina. And I went places and people didn't know me. Then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, I'm playing the same thing they are. As a matter of fact, I can play it better than them. Why won't you listen to me? You know, why are you not even paying, you know, want to listen to me, want to let me talk. And that's when I started to get that, you know, realization of, of the discrimination that this is a really big deal, you know. Um, so that's, that's been um, a very, I guess hard is a good word for it. I mean, you know, it's been a very challenging road. I'm thankful that, you know, I had, you know, a family that prepared me that or told me early on that, you know, some people are just not gonna like you. There's nothing you can do about it because this you were born and just the fact that you exist, people are not gonna like you. There's nothing you can do to change it. And you just gotta be yourself and just do the very best you can. And I was blessed enough to, to be able to carry that mindset and get through some of this. Doesn't mean that, you know, I didn't have times where it hurt me. I would cry, you know, wanna give up, you know, just like people do. Um, but I was able to push through. Um, I think I said before one time, um, so I, I think I came home to my mom and I told her that, you know, people were talking about me. They said, they're saying that I'm bougie, you know, meaning that I thought I was better than them or uppity. And she said, well, baby, you are. You are better than them. So don't worry about it. Do what you do. And I was like, okay, mom, cool. And I just kept on going. So, you know, I always had, you know, that, that support 
to just be me, you know, no matter what. I think I, I tried that road of converting myself and trying to look the part and be like everybody else. The same thing, everybody kind of goes through that. I, I have to look like everybody else, do everything like everybody else, buy this like everybody else, you know, be identical. And at some point I, I said, no, you know, I was born to be me. There's no one else like me. I might as well just be me. And if people don't accept me, you know, that's really their problem. So, you know, that's been my kind of road with discrimination. It's been like an up down thing. And I think the great thing in all of this is that I've been tough enough to go through it. And it gives me the opportunity to meet other people who are experiencing the same things and kind of give them hope, you know, or, you know, something to aspire to, because I've talked to so many people who not even where I am and way on the other side of the, of the United States, there's, I feel the same thing. I feel so isolated. I, this is this and this. And they're like, I'm so glad to see you because, you know, now I know that I can keep going or, you know, I can give them comfort or let them know I've been through there. I remember what that felt like. I remember crying and being hurt and, you know, or being hurt by something so bad you wanted to cry, but you knew you couldn't because you couldn't show that weakness, you know, things that you shouldn't have to do, but it happens. Jillian, thanks so much for, for sharing all of that, especially some, some real personal anecdotes. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you have some thoughts on what you would, what you hope your students learn from you about diversity and representation. Um, what should what should students know? What do you think every every student today should be aware of? I think that each student should just be aware that I think difference is beautiful. You know, we we are not created to be identical. If if we were supposed to be identical, then we would all be the same color. We would all be the same gender. We would all walk the same. We would all talk the same. We would all we would have been born that way. So there's a reason why we all have been born different, you know, and that's the beauty of life. So as far as diversity, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking different, being different, having a different mindset. You should embrace that, you know, don't feel like you have to force it, you know, because that's another extreme. You don't have to stand out on purpose, but, you know, be okay with yourself, you know, be true to who you are and just be the best version of yourself. I think that's more so than anything I have for all of my students, whether they're percussionists, you know, they're even people come by there in my music appreciation class, they're like, hey, I'm majoring in English, whatever I talk to them, I'm like, you know, just be you, be, you know, pleased that you are you and be the best version of you. That's that's what I think as far as diversity. Just um, don't get caught up in um, trying to fit this model like this next person. Yes, we have standards and, and all these things, benchmarks, we've mentioned them before, but you've got to be you and do the very best that you can do. It's also factually better. I mean, we've done, they've done research saying, you know, teams that are of people more diverse collective, it's like they solve creative problems better, they get projects done better, like they're their benchmarks are higher when it's teams of diverse people. It was related, y'all. Sorry, I steamrolled. <laughs> and it was short. Relax. So, uh, well, going back to the, the gender thing, I was just going to say, I know we've talked about this before, but like Carly, like 
audiences can just like be so, I hate to say audiences can be stupid, but like Carly, Carly's told me stories about, you know, like she's played a concert and had, had men walk up to her after and like, I didn't know a little girl like you could could be so powerful on it on a drum. It's like what like what do you think it takes to play a snare drum or a bass drum? It's like, but yeah, like yeah, Car Carly can play a drum loud. Are you are you surprised that someone of smaller stature can 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 do that? I I don't. It's like not shocking at all to me. Um, but then uh, like Jillian, hearing your story reminded me so much of I just watched uh, yesterday the documentary called What Happened, Miss Simone, uh, which is about Nina Simone on on Netflix. And uh, for anyone that's not familiar with Nina Simone, she is a very famous sort of jazz and soul pianist and singer. Uh, and she was classically trained. Uh, she she studied at a very young age, Bach and Beethoven, and uh, and she wanted to be the first ever black pianist, uh, excuse me, black classical pianist uh, that would appear in Carnegie Hall. And uh, she was rejected from Curtis uh, and it's speculated it was because of racism. And she ended up taking up this career as like a jazz singer to, to make money. And then she ultimately actually became very involved with the civil rights movement. And something that Carly said that, that sings so true to me is like, I, Jillian, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but like you, you just trained to, because you wanted to be a musician. You, you weren't trying to be a black musician or a female musician. You just wanted to be a great musician. And there must be, it seems like there's a possibility for frustration in having to be an advocate. Uh, and you do such a wonderful job with it, with PAS. But I wonder, like, does that weigh on you? Like, are there days when you wake up and you just feel like, I wish I could just be a musician and not have to advocate? Well, I don't know that I'll go to that extreme, but yeah, it does weigh on me. I, I think what I'd mostly say is, yeah, I wish that globally, you know, we would just be concerned about being great, you know, as in music, you know, that's, that's all I really want to be. I want to be a great musician. I'm not concerned about being, you know, a great, you know, I think at one point in time, I wanted to be um, a great solo marimba player, you know, and I, you know, I could be the first great black, you know, marimba player, you know, but I'm like, really, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I just want to play the instrument great. I just want to, you know, have anything that I touch just sound awesome. You know, that's really the goal, you know, what color my skin is or what my gender is really should not matter. I just, I would rather somebody say like, wow, Julian is just like the greatest musician ever. The end. I mean, that's good enough for me right there. Well, on an unrelated note, but a PAS question I've, I've wanted to ask for a while. And uh, Josh Simmons became president of PAS. I just looked at writing in 2016. And I think we've barely mentioned his name on this podcast ever. Uh, and I know he's doing great things, but I don't really actually know all that well what what Josh is doing is it not is no sorry executive director not president my bad um but could you tell us about Josh Simmons and and what he's doing with PAS yeah Joshua Simons yeah I can uh, Simon yes yeah um yeah he's took over as executive director and you know he is um that I don't want to say support staff but really he is staff to work with the board of directors he works with um committees, he works with Diversity Alliance, you know, if I had a proposal for something, say I wanted, I had an idea I wanted to throw out there, you know, I might put it all together and work with my committee and this, 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 and this, but I would actually bring it, you know, to him. 
and you know make my pitch. You know, here's the idea, and he he would be in charge of making sure that whatever I'm doing is within the mission of PAS. Is it you know this is this and this or giving ideas of maybe you want to streamline this or think about this idea. You know, so he has a hand in a lot of different things as far as making sure all of our initiatives stay where they need to be. We're not, you know, trying to absorb too many things in our ideas. Um, he's kind of that go-to person. He's also, um, if you're thinking about the PAS home quarters, actually going to a location, you know, he's kind of that day-to-day -day person that is over um, any other support staff that are there um, at the PAS home in Indianapolis. That's kind of the, the short snapshot of a lot of things he does. He makes sure that um, we have funding for different things and, you know, there's a lot of things he does. Awesome, thanks. Well, Jillian, I, I do wanna make sure we talk about what, what kinds of upcoming projects you have. What music are you working on? I think I remember on um, Pete's podcast back, I think you recorded it in the fall, you were working on some recital repertoire. Is that is that right? Yeah, I was working on some recital repertoire and you know, with the pandemic, it has definitely made me, I don't wanna say wavering, but it makes me jump around a whole lot more. You know, I, I've started pieces and like, oh, I love this piece and I'm working on it, but oh, I would love to play this piece. You know, so I've been jumping around. You know, I have gone back and been working on some pieces that I played before, but things that I, I, I may have played in years past and thinking, wow, I really wanna go back and play this piece. You know, pieces like um, for Two Malice, you know, Prism, the Keiko Abe, I pull back out the four rotations, the Eric Samu. Um, Casey, you may, you can, uh, what's this piece, Casey? You know what that is? Let's see, that is, uh, what is that? Oh, that's the Encore. Yes. On Harry, our Encore. Oh, cool. <laughs> yes. I've been wow. Doing, I had started that piece. Oh, thanks. A, a minute ago and started it and stopped it. It started and so I'm like, I got to get back to doing that. You know, wow. I, I pulled back out. I played your white knuckle stroll. That was the first piece I actually um, played of yours and made me fall in love with your music. So, you know, just stuff like oh, that. Oh, thanks. Oh, yeah. Your stuff is great. Um, I guess it's about me, Harley. You ever busted a knuckle playing white knuckle stroll? <laughs> I think like, trying to go so fast. Because um, I have. <laughs> I think that encore, I think that encore is harder. There's some, there's some. Yeah. I yeah. like to play it stuff with a lot of notes in it. I actually find yeah. that I always over-program my concerts. I never have a place to stop and take a breath. I just have notes from beginning to end. And I think I'm like halfway through my performance and I'm thinking, man, I'm tired, but I got to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Those pieces will do it for sure. But yeah, those, those are the things I'm doing. I have, um, some other vibe pieces I've started. I was going to do a Nate Rosaro piece, um, um, but I actually have another piece that I was uh, starting to work on, a vibraphone and piano piece. So I've got a lot of kind of stuff I'm just still jumping back and forth to. So, you know, if you have any suggestions of how to hone that in, you know, I'm going to have like two hours worth of stuff in a second. 
No. I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm enjoying pandemic practicing and I'm doing some of the similar, similar things to you. I've, I pulled back out prism too after a long time. <laughs> and you know, some of these pieces, like even just like taking the time, well, one student's working on this piece, I'm going to work this back up and, and mm -hmm. things like it's, it's like normally in normal times, I tell my students like winter break and summer practicing is so great. You don't have a lesson every week. You can just kind of explore and experiment. And it's been, I don't know, for me anyway, like a, a kind of 11 month um, pandemic practicing session, like, but I'm enjoying it. Like, let's explore this for a little while. And what's what's forced me to rein it in is when like, oh, I got to put together a program for this. I got a I got a deadline here. What's the rep going to be? Um, but it, it sounds like it sounds like you're doing all the right things and probably just having a little bit of space to let yourself explore and, you know, play Casey's music. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, everyone <laughs> can do that. Yeah. Everyone do that. It's actually I why I cleared out my room here is I'm going to have a huge multi setup, I think. It's funny you both mentioned Prism because I did that I, maybe three, two or three faculty recitals ago, not too long ago. Uh, I also was compelled to pull that back out. Ben, when's the last time you played Prism? Um, it's I important. The, the concerto. Right. I played the concerto my first year here um, but I don't think I've played prism or any variations of since then but I do like prism that's that's actually I would say that's like the the piece I learned the longest ago in my repertoire that I still would play today mm -hmm. right yeah probably probably me too there what multi is going to go in that space Carly well it was a joke I was going to say like I'm going to oh like a Casey piece what's your largest setup Casey <laughs> Maybe this one behind me, the Timpanis. <laughs> what's the what's the most expensive piece on your website, Casey? Right, it's probably this one. Do you know how long it took right. to draw that? Do you see that? We'll go with that. It took a long time, and people are like, "Oh, did you do that in Illustrator?" It's like, "No, I did that in Finale." They're like, "What? How did you do that in Finale?" Like, "Yeah, Finale, you can do it." It's fun. It's a fun argument. My favorite argument on Facebook: Can Finale do it? That's my favorite one. <laughs> Well, I think Casey uses finale for fun outside of um, practicing and teaching. But Jillian, what do you like to do to de-stress and non-musical, non-teaching related things? You know, I, I love to read. I've always been uh, a reader of books. So I just, I love to read. I, I like to journal. And then, you know, if I'm really just wanting um, just totally not think at all. I mean, just turn on the TV and just watch mindless television. You know, that's always the way to do. And I don't think it's really been into these last years that I've actually even been into watching TV. So now I will just binge watch, you know, just shows I never thought I'd watch before, just whole episodes or series, you know, that I'll do that, you know. What's your favorite show that you've watched recently? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I've gone back, you know, and started, you know, watching, you know, how Hawaii Five O, you know, you know, some old show. Yeah, yeah. Just going back and going back to the beginning and coming forward. But I always love all those different shows, you know. Um, SVU, Law and Order This. I saw they have a new Law and Order that's coming out with Staplers coming back. So I'm like excited to see if that's gonna be any good. Uh, you know. I'm totally into that type of stuff. You know, even that show, The Prodigal Son, is kind of weird out there, but I'm like, I'll watch that kind of stuff too. I'm just. 
Yeah, I don't know that one. I don't know that one. But we've been we've been doing a lot of crime shows too. I mean, there's that. This is so dorky, but Friday Night Lineup, like MacGyver, the remake, and yes, um, what's Pi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always great to hear from you and hear your thoughts and your perspective. So thank you for joining and we'll see you, see you all listeners on the next episode.